0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, I'm joined by Minhua Ling, Assistant Professor in the Center for Chinese Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Mi Hua is joining us to talk about her book, The Inconvenient Generation, Migrant Youth Coming of Age on Shanghai's Edge, which was published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. After three decades of massive rural to urban migration in China, a burgeoning population of over 35 million second-generation migrants living in its cities poses a challenge to Chinese socialist modes of population management and urban governance. In The Inconvenient Generation, Min Hualing offers the first longitudinal study of these migrant youth as they come of age at a time of competing economic and social imperatives. Through richly textured ethnography, probing into the policymaking behind urban governance and its segmented inclusion, Min Ling offers an earnest voice to the aspirations and experiences of second-generation young men and women migrants against the backdrop of a re-emergent global Shanghai. Minhua Ling's book is an excellent companion for anyone interested in the politics of citizenship in late socialist China, and an ideal text for more general courses in the anthropology of China and urban studies. Beyond China, the Inconvenient Generation will interest anyone concerned about the inequalities of segmented inclusion that migrants face around the world. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Minhua, who I have the pleasure of joining on the show today. Minhua, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and research interests. What drove you to conduct ethnography on migrant youth in Shanghai? Hmm.
2: Um, I see myself um, caught in between the rural and the urban when I grew up. Uh, Even though I'm a native Shanghainese, um, I grew up in the rural side in Pudong, which used to be a rural county. And um, only it only developed into an urban center um, after the 1990s, um, China, like urbanizing policies. And um, my grandparents' uh, villages uh, and their village houses were taken down uh, because of the uh, land um, grabbing and industrializing uh, kind of projects. So I feel my personal life has been deeply shaped by China's urbanizing processes. And so partly I'm very curious about the impact of this macro seemingly inevitable process um, upon individuals and the uh, communities. Um, and on the other hand, uh, as I'm um, more consciously searching for research topic. I'd be in um, contact with a lot of um, migrants whose children uh, were looking for um, kindergartens and the primary schools um, because my mom, um, has been working as a kindergarten teacher, so she has a lot of contact with those um, migrant families, and I observe, um, you know, closely the anxieties of those parents. So when I was about to start a PhD um, program, I was uh, asking myself, uh, what should I do? And uh, I one the summer when I um, returned to Shanghai, it, it's, um it only occurred to me then. Uh, some of those migrant children were asking me about their college uh, choices. And I just uh, realized that uh, there's a whole generation of um, youth already reaching adulthood and are um, kind of making very hard uh, decisions about their um, higher education and and about their future lives. So I, I think that it uh, can be in a um, both personally meaningful and uh, socially significant topic for me. So that's why I chose to look at those um, migrants who grew up in the city, but they who were not officially uh, considered as part of the, um, uh, the citizen because their parents uh, uh, like hold a non-local hukou, a hukou from other provinces, and they were still on paper considered as um, a peasants or like you know uh, agricultural household members. Yeah,
1: yeah, and this really comes out, especially you know, from the very beginning of your book in the introduction, um, which is titled "Coming of Age in an Urban Growth Problem." where you highlight the politics of citizenship in a country like China that continues to maintain inequality in a dual-track citizen sy- system, as you just described. The system which marginalizes populations according to whether they d- carry rural or urban household registration status, um, hukou, which you just, which you just mentioned. Um, so this hukou system ends up trapping rural migrants into what you call liminal subjects. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about who these liminal subjects are and what kind of urban growth dilemmas are they facing as they come of age?
2: I use liminal subjects um, to capture the in-betweenness of those migrant uh, children. Um, and I borrowed uh, the term from Vic Turner, but, it's, it, but use it in a very different uh, context, Um while in those um, life, life of um, life stage uh, rituals, the when the teenagers um, turn into adulthood, the rites of passage, right, and trying to acknowledge this liminality and to give the space and time and space for the children to kind of uh, uh, tra- transit into uh, a full adulthood, uh, while here in the, you know post-reform China's. Um, Political economy. Those are rural to urban migrants and their children um, to me are kept in partly intentionally to become liminal or in between this um, rural, urban, local, non-local binary system for both economic and the political reasons. And those um, and the Chinese uh, label. To describe these, um, this population, Nomingong, which literally means peasant worker, captured this uh, in-betweenness of this group because they were uh, on paper considered to be peasants, attached to agricultural land and belonged to some rural community. And despite the fact that they might have been working in cities for decades, and the children might have been growing up in cities, have no agricultural experience, and have seldom uh, visit their home village in their entire, like you know, uh, life. So um, they were urban, um, like you know, beings. They were city people, often in their own conception. But they also know that, on paper, institutionally. They are not accepted as um, being by the city or the urban community as part of them. So they, they were kind of between this uh, two um, parallel systems. and they are access to a lot of important uh, welfare, including public education, Uh, rights to social security and medical insurance were um, compromised because of their um, non-local status. So they were kept um, by the state institution to be in the kind of a perpetual uh, in-between status, at least for the time being, um, so that they were neither fully rural nor urban and um, they are, um, They have to kind of uh, navigate through these kind of uh, structural um, barriers in order to um, fulfill their own, you know, uh, desires and to um, complete their self identity. And the, during this process, there's a very a lot of confusion and 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 a sense of uh, um, despair. despair. While um, they still aspire to do become something, so it, they are in the process of becoming, um, and this process is uh, I call it like you know a stage of liminality. But how long can they? Um, how long do they have to stay in this stage? And when they can come out of it, seem to be. Uh, out of their like you know um, individual control, so and there's a, a, the another layer of the nation state upon them. So it so they become this very um, liminal and inconvenient subject. So that's that, that's um, why I'm using this term to um, kind of you know call them. That.
1: Yeah, I think this really comes out in each of your chapters where you delve even further how this you know, very inherited hukou system gets taken on. By these, by these youth. And in chapter one, you specifically do this looking at the home environment of these, of these migrant youth um, and, and looking at kind of you, you conceptualize their adolescent experiences by examining their living environments. Can you tell our listeners about what these peripheral living spaces are like, where your interlocutors were living?
2: hmm. So on newspaper, we often just look uh, like, you know, get to the numbers, right? How many are now living in this uh, city and the Shanghai's population, how, uh, you know, uh, rapidly grew, grew just uh, in the past decade. And um, now more than one third of its population are non-local residents but um, I think only uh, grounded uh, fieldwork can uh, t- show how, uh, where those uh, migrants exactly live and how they um, uh, identify with different parts of the urban space. So um, in my own uh, observation, as well as um, those kind of a national uh, census statistics, you actually can see that most uh, rural to urban migrants do not live in the uh, urban center They're often in those um, peri, uh, I call it um, peri-urban zones, or the so-called, in Chinese, uh, um, city-countryside convergent zones. So a lot of those places are formerly um, agricultural land. Um, Some are owned collectively by villages, yet to be urbanized, or some are collectively um, owned kind of factory uh, Compounds and or um, like you know dilapidated a state-owned uh, factory kind of uh, space which was being rebuilt often by migrants themselves into kind of uh, cheap rental housing units where um, uh, low-income migrants can rent and uh, uh, live um, at a relatively low cost. So um, I in the book I. Um, use the photos to demonstrate the kind of the, the spatial change over time because as the city um, expand um, and they're trying to acquire more and more land for real estate development and industrial zone expansion, those uh, migrant um, communities are also under constant um, threat of demolition and the relocation. So a lot of those urban youth, uh, migrant youth, um, had the experience of uh, moving uh, into multiple rental places, um, and uh, their uh, sense of um, the relations, their their sense of their relation, uh, their relationship to the city, actually is somewhat um, quite um, per, uh, kind of. Um, Liminal, in as as well, right? Because uh, they don't have a uh, stable uh, address that they that the, the mailing system will recognize. Um, they have to, because a lot of those rental places don't have a specific uh, number and a street name. Um, and secondly because they have to constantly move uh, outward for in search for cheaper rental uh, units so they often just refer to their home uh, like a residential place in the directional uh, terms out of this rain uh, or near that store instead of a normal kind of a street address and i found that that's very striking and as i think it's kind of a symbolic as well because um, it signifies their kind of peripheral or um, in between kind of status uh, in the the, the city, because um, they they are crucial for the local economy. Um, working as vendors, uh, like uh, trash uh, collectors, recyclists, um, and a, a lot of like you know, manufacturing workers, but they also were kind of uh, hidden. Um, In the kind of uh, rapidly um, urbanizing um, process, because those um, cheap rental places are often um, are are under the uh, kind of I considered a project to be removed, to be um, beautified uh, by the city government. So they are under a constant process of um, be like you know chasing uh, after chasing for. more peripheral land for um, <clears throat> for like livelihood, um, and the fact that in Shanghai n- n- there were not that much uh, that n- there are no kind of large scale slum like uh, migrant communities itself is very interesting. Um, I think partly due to the very complicated land tenure system in Shanghai where you. Have the coexistence of a state-owned um, factories, um, village-owned uh, land, and uh, um, those uh, kind of a uh, special units owned, um, such as the military-owned uh, land. So it uh, doesn't uh, kind of make the Shanghai's um, kind of land tenure system quite fragmented. So large-scale uh, occupation by migrant itself is very hard. And secondly, I think the strong state power plays a huge role in preventing any uh, migrant community from developing into a large uh, uh, developing in large scale. And this whole kind of top-down uh, urban beautifying projects um, is specifically target at those uh, low-income migrant communities. So um, whenever there are large projects um, going on, and those migrants will be forced to um, relocate. So I think um, so. This uh, those migrant youths um, grew up in this kind of um, less visible urban space that uh, often overlooked by um, observers from outside. And uh, a lot of my local friends would be quite surprised to learn that, you know, I'm doing research in certain area, which they were supposed to be familiar with, but they are only familiar with the universities or the shopping malls like uh, next to those uh, migrant communities, but they never really put their feet on uh, those migrant communities. And they never uh, cons- put um, put much soot on how those migrant communities um, help maintain the local economic system, including, you know, uh, the restaurants, um, you know, uh, janitoring service, janitor service, and et cetera, like keep those commercial centers, educational uh, institutions um, from uh, like, like keep it going. So there's a kind of a um, cognitive negligence among a lot of locals, while where, where, while those uh, the undeniably a uh, large number of migrant children actually uh, grew up in those places
1: yeah and I really enjoyed how you um, how you were able to 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 learn about and experience, you know, the the, the the lives of these communities and specifically how these, because they are so invisible, so it allows for, you know, certain um, shops to be put up, certain business to be set up by the community members themselves that maybe um, kind of, that allows for this kind of turning of, the, of, a, of a blind eye too. It's, it's not because it is so invisible. So I really, I thought that was really, really very striking. Um, in, in your book itself. Um, but let's move on to chapter two, where you delve into China's family planning and child care practices. How has, chi- um, how has China's nationwide, fa- nationwide family planning policies shaped the lives of migrant youth in Shanghai that you got to know?
2: Yeah. There are a lot of misconceptions about China's family um, planning policies. Uh, one uh, common misconception is that uh, Chinese Uh, parents are only allowed one kid. Well, this is uh, applicable to many um, urban households, especially in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai. And since the 1990s, I think the one child policy was uh, um, uh, strictly implemented in certain urban areas. Um, so that you see this whole uh, one-child um, family, uh, one-child household, right? Um, and this is a phenomenal, like you know, say, uh, only emperor, uh, like a s- only child uh, generation uh, coming of age, and there's, there are quite some study about that. But actually, the family planning policies has never been unified, uh, like you know, um, equally uh, applied. Uh, across China, there are a lot of regional variation and uh, there are differences uh, when it comes to rural households. So in many parts of the rural areas, agricultural households uh, are allowed to have a second child um, if their first child um, is a daughter or their first child has some um, physical uh, disability, or etc. And because of the uh, strong kind of uh, preference for son, as well as this uh, like a traditional notion of, uh, you know, the more offspring you have, the better, um, does result in more than one child among many rural households, uh, even in the, during the heydays of the family planning policy. So when I'm doing research, I found that most of those migrant children have siblings. So um, uh, about more than one, more than half will have at least one sibling, and in some cases they may have uh, three to uh, four siblings. Um, partly, and their parents would um, could manage to have more children partly because they have the rural household call. so um, they were uh, less subject to kind of close. Uh, state surveillance, because uh, in the urban areas, um, the urban families who have hold uh, state-owned jobs uh, will be severely punished for having more than one child, while in the rural areas, there are more kind of actually space for negotiation. Um, Even though we read from news a lot of horrifying stories about how uh, rural women being uh, like you know, experience forced abortion or kind of uh, the rural households were taken away properties. I think um, those are uh, extreme cases, um, and uh, still a lot of uh, families managed to have uh, more than one children. And the fact that those uh, migrant uh, families can move and uh, work in the cities, the physical distance allow them to also escape. Their local governments, uh, like you know, surveillance and uh, even punishment. So, in quite some cases, those migrant um, parents managed to hide their children uh, in the household registration system, uh, not reporting their uh, second or third uh, ch- child until they reach the school age or even until adulthood. So that then they it become only become when it becomes necessary, then will they report to the local police, they uh, public security bureaus and get them the um, kind of IDs. So this is um, one thing that is uh, quite interesting and uh, uh, you know uh, about those migrant uh, children's growing up experience, uh, which is very distinct from urban only child families. So I decided to uh, write about it. But more importantly, I think there's a social um, discourse which um, discriminates those uh, migrant families because of their uh, having more than one child. So this whole critique of those migrant parents uh, for having more than one, uh, for uh, uh, kind of violating the family planning policy um, has being mobilized and used by a lot of urban households to justify their privilege as urban citizens and to to defend this uh, nativist kind of stand um, in terms of uh, welfare distribution. Because a lot of uh, Shanghai families would argue that, oh, uh, we... Um, follow the government policies. We sacrifice ourselves by not having more than one child. We do whatever governments tell us. So we were the responsible citizens. Hence, we deserve the full urban citizenship. But you um, you didn't follow the family planning po- policy. You were um, uh, creating uh, more burdens to the, 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 the um, government and kind of under social uh, public welfare, hence you do not deserve to be the um, right for citizen uh, in the city. So I, I this kind of discourse, I think is um, uh, you know often neglected uh, in the kind of public uh, in kind of a scholarly discussion. So I want to um, bring it out in my chapter. And I found in they end I think a lot of those migrant youth was themselves quite uh, aware of this discourse, and they were kind of you know um, quite unhappy about it. So I also want to report that because they 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 think this kind of you know um, critique of their parents and also this media gaze uh, that portray them as the you know poor miserable. Uh, uh kids wandering on street without much parental uh, care is very contrived it, it just pitch them against those affluent urban uh, children and uh, which result in very unfair uh portrait of them their lives and their experience of the family life and uh, also I found it's very um, unfair to their parents' effort to bring up those children in the city. So uh, I think it is um, very unfortunate that uh, so, so many um, urbanites, including educated um, urban uh, you know, professionals, are still uh, thinking that way.
1: Absolutely. And this this kind of exclusionary citizenship, as you were just describing, comes out again in much more detail when you delve into the public middle schooling system, which you do in Chapter three titled Outsiders and Public Middle School. What makes students of migrant backgrounds in Shanghai who go to public middle schools um, outsiders?
2: So let me first clarify here um, in China, uh, the The public education system is still the norm and the mainstream, especially for the nine-year so-called basic education. So the majority of Chinese families send their kids to um, public schools. And that's the preferred way because the government pour most resources into the public school system. Even though in major cities like Shanghai, Beijing, you start to see very fancy kind of uh, international or private uh, schools that are preferred by some upper middle class families, but um, the majority still prefer public school. So migrant um, parents who um, you know, uh, aspire um, to um, give better education to their children... Uh, naturally want to put their kids in public school as well. But they have to actually overcome a lot of hurdles in order to do that. Unlike their uh, urban peers, they have, they have to um, prove themselves um, eligible for limited seats in public schools because the local public schools are funded by local government. And uh, the nativist kind of a protectionist kind of approach to this uh, funding uh, scheme prevents um, local public schools from actively recruiting migrant uh, students until very recently. Um, In the case of Shanghai, only after 2008, the Shanghai municipal government and the local district governments um, uh, commit to... Uh, fund uh, l- m- those local public schools which admit migrant students. So they fund each sc- school a um, certain amount of money for each uh, migrant student that they admit. So um, before early 2000s, migrant cho- uh, par- children have a very hard time in getting into public uh, primary school and middle school. So their parents have to either... Um, do a very successful business and can pay extra uh, so-called borrow study fee dufei, to put their kids in public school or those parents would um, be uh, would purchase um, apartments um, and acquire so-called uh, blue stamp hu-kou, a special um, household registration that allows the property owners to uh, put their kids in public school. So and it, it it is around 2008 when the public school system become more acceptive of um, so-called qualified migrant children so still not every co- migrant children can go to public school um, the the education Bureau still requires a few documentations uh, including the family planning certificate and parents um uh, employment uh, record and uh, the um, residential approve proof and uh, increasingly now in the past few years they all require those um, pa- migrant parents to pay a uh, number of years of uh, social security and, uh, to, uh, through a formal employment which means um, a lot of migrants who were engaged in self-employment or informal economy um, act still have no uh, chance to send their kids to public schools. And um, the, the policy changes in the recent uh, few years actually are turning away um, the increasing number of migrant students from the public school system. So from my study, um, my research started uh, around 2008. So I, I witnessed the opening up of public school system to those migrant children, but uh, since the uh, mid 2010s, there's a kind of uh, enclosure again um, due to a lot of those um, actual requirements on migrant parents' um, economic status. Um, so it's a very unfortunate that that there's a reverse um, happening at this moment.
1: Yeah, and this. This expands through to the vocational schools, if I'm not mistaken, which you look at in more chapter four. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, you examine the stigma, as well as the anxieties and ambivalences that migrant students experience before and after enrolling in vocational schools. At the same time, you also shed light to the opportunities that these schools offer that allow migrant youth to reposition themselves in the urban environment. Where does the stigma of vocational schools derive from and how do migrant youth that you got to know
2: shed off some of the negativity that it carries? Vocational education is now an increasingly popular topic um, in Chinese studies, partly because uh, the Chinese government is now pushing for uh, vocational education because the lack of skilled labor has imposed some serious challenge into China's economic development. And from the state's point of view, it is very important to put enough students in vocational schools so that they will, be, um, they will become the uh, skilled labor for manufacturing and the service industry. However, um, in the past three decades, the marketization of China's education system, especially the expansion of the university education, um, has, has created this uh, hierarchy uh, in which uh, the four-year university education was, um, has become widely the desired um, education option for Chinese youth, while the um, vocational education Has become increasingly um, uh, kind of uh, inferior and the two, um, and and was considered to be a very bad option for um, those students um, because um, partly because um, the middle class kind of aspiration for uh, uh, more credential, partly because the vocational education system itself um, has become uh, marketized. So there's no Direct link between vocational education and the job placement, because in the past, in the socialist era, you may say there's a, there's a much more guarantee when in terms of a job placement. But um, in the market economy, this direct link has been um, is, has been broken. So, uh, getting a vocational education degree doesn't. Guarantee a, a well paying uh, uh, doesn't guarantee a stable job, still less a well paying job, um, and also the curriculum in the vocational edu- uh, in the vocational edu- uh, schools um, um, has proved to be quite problematic and uh, impractical. Um, uh, the, uh, my my chapter also mentioned how the students felt felt that they were not learning much. Uh, in vocational school, a lot of time was wasted, and um, uh, the teachers' um, uh, teaching quality was not well monitored uh, by the Education Bureau because the efforts are all put in into the exam oriented uh, high school, academic high school, and the educa- uh, university system, not on the vocational system. And um, also, um, there's a kind of um, class differentiation over time. When we talk about education, so whoever uh, who, uh, for those families that have any economic means, they will try to put their kids into uh, at least a three-year college instead of a vocational school because college degree was considered to be um, better and uh, will lead to better uh, more job uh, better jobs in the future. So. Um, increasingly vocational education has become associated with uh, working class, with the, um, you know, the, the poor. While in the past, in Mao's era, actually, those who could, uh, given that a tertiary education is very limited and not well developed, those who, can, who could manage to go to vocational school is already considered to be pretty uh, better off, right? And uh, um, so there's a very different class association with um, uh, the vocational education uh, in the post-reform era, so I found like in um, during fieldwork, a lot of students were referred as uh, "cha and bad students um, by teachers, by um, even parents and the children themselves. So there's this strong stigma attached to vocational education at this um, like you know decade. Um, despite the state promotion, um, and, uh, um, and and so the the st- so this creates a very um, kind of uh, real existential crisis for a lot of those migrant youth at the turn of uh, their middle school when they are trying to decide where they sh- uh, what they should do after middle school. Should they go back to um, the hometown? So that they could, uh, uh, you know, achieve uh, like a pursue academic high school, or they should uh, stay in the city, but they only go to you know, sec- uh, inferior or skip- stigmatized the vocational education. Um, I noticed a lot of students experience very um, um, a lot of um, emotional kind of uh, trials. A lot of tears has been shed. And um, a lot of people feel disillusioned after going to vocational school or even before, like they already start to lose incentive in the towards the last two years in middle school. And this kind of creates a vicious circle. Right. So um, people's expectation of them has become so low, so they didn't put efforts into um, academic work. And then when they went to vocational school, it became even worse. It's a spiral down experience. Of course, I wouldn't say that there's nothing good about it. Uh, as I think, you know, those teenagers, they still fun seeking and they are still um, aspiring to something. So um, I found um, the vocational education, the the, the option itself does open up space and time for those migrant youth who do not want to go back home um, in the extra uh, year, extra two to three years um, before joining the labor market so that they could uh, hang out with their classmates and take up uh, part-time jobs, and you know, enjoy city life uh, with much less um, supervision from their parents or the teachers, so that they become uh, more urbanized. And this whole this socializing process uh, allows them to build um, networks across the local non-local boundary. Because in the vocational school, um, a lot of students are local students. Um, the migrant student actually, in terms of a sheer number, might be the minority. Um, but uh, um, but because they are all in this uh, you know inferior um, second uh, kind of choice, um, and they were all looked down upon by those university students. So they form certain kind of a group solidarity among them, which can uh, like you know consent um, transcend this urban, uh, rural, local, non-local boundaries that are often observed among their parents' generation. So I observe uh, a lot of incidents of uh, friendship among uh, local Shanghainese and uh, those migrant youth and also dating um, across those boundaries. And uh, in my follow-up study, I found that, you know, there's there are marriages right um, between um, those um, migrant youth and the local youth. So this I think the vocational uh, education option is still uh, providing the alternative for migrant youth to be able uh, to settle their feet in the city and to step uh, to kind of uh, start their career. But of course, what kind of careers they can have remains uh, like a big um, challenge and a, a big challenge.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, and we'll return to that topic of, of the careers that that, that that these students get from vocational schools. But for now I wanted to return to um to this idea of going going back to the village, as you mentioned quite a few times just now, and as you write about in more detail in Chapter 5, where you follow migrant students who, have, who leave Shanghai for their registered hometowns in the hopes of making up for the disadvantage of not being able to attend high school or, or um, University education in the city, um, and I really enjoyed reading about these um, these you know these students these young people's lives as as you trace some of the cultural discord and some of the loneliness, social a- alienation that they faced when going back to the rural homes. And in most of the cases, it wasn't a very happy return. Or maybe even for the first time, you know, going back to these villages that that their parents left. Um, but perhaps you could lay out some of the institutional reasons that migrant youth need to return um, to the countryside to participate in rural schooling system. and you could yourself tell us some about t- tell us more about the difficulties they experienced
2: um, as they returned. Thank you for the questions. Uh, yes, I, I think those returns are often not happy, and the return the name is is a misnomer. Um, a lot of them, as you mentioned, um, haven't been back to their the home village for decades. And uh, it's, for them, it's a new place to go to and a, a strange place that they are not familiar with. And the reason why they, a lot of them feel compelled to go back is because of the schooling barrier. Um, in the Chinese education system, it requires that students can only take the um, high school entrance examination and the university entrance examination in their registered um, home um, town and later home province. So, if you hold a Anhui prop, uh, hukou, hukou uh, in the Anhui, um, in the township. Then you in order to be eligible to take the um, university uh, the middle school or high school entrance exam, you need to have the 学籍, the study registration uh, in that locale. So for those migrants who study in Shanghai's public school but without the Shanghai local hukou, they were not eligible to sit in the examinations to go to high school and then later to the university. So a lot of parents um, you know, determined to send uh, their children, especially those uh, with uh, strong academic performances, to go back, so that uh, go back to their registered hometown, so that they can uh, study in the local middle school, and in, and then they could be eligible to take those examinations. Well, in theory, it's doable especially if you study hard and, uh, you know, get used to the exam system. But in reality, there are multiple um, difficulties. So the first is um, different provinces um, use different textbooks. So the Shanghai's textbooks are significantly different from those in the inland uh, provinces. Um, There's a much more emphasis on English, for example, in Shanghai, while um, in um, many other places, uh, English teaching is very weak. So um, a lot of students experience the difficulty in adjusting to the curriculum. But even if they uh, chose to go back earlier so that they could adjust to the different curriculum, there are also a lot of uh, restrictions in terms of the examination. Um, So... The because the population uh, varies and because the uh, school admission is often administered, uh, administered um, locally, so there's a quota system, especially for university admission. So each university will have a quota for, one, for each province. So students from one uh, P- province A are competing among among themselves to get a limited number of seats to go to the university uh, B. So the competition in those um, rural uh, hinterland provinces where populations are large, uh, educational resources are, are like a little, the the competition is fierce. While the co- uh, the quota for that province. is is much less than those for major cities like Shanghai and Beijing. So a student studying um, in Anhui province will have much less chance to get into a uh, good university simply because of his or her um, registration, because the competition pool is different. And she has to, she or he has to compete with her uh, fellow countrymen in the Anhui province, and has to score really high to be considered um, for the, uh, you know, provincial quota system. So, um, empirical uh, data has shown that the number of students coming from rural areas with agriculture hukou in top universities has, has systematically decreased uh, over the years. Um, urban students uh, living in big cities where most universities are located have much more advantage than other than students from other provinces, especially in the rural areas, right? Um, to get into those good universities. So, by physically going back to your hometown and uh, enrolling in a local middle school doesn't guarantee um, a fair competition to go to university. So a lot of my informants gradually realize that, and they often feel quite disillusioned, and the competition was too hard to put up with. Um, and um, in just because um, this is an ethnographic study, um, my sample is small, but uh, among them, only one got into a first-tier university. And it's not in the you know, coastal area, not in Shanghai, that's, uh, where she preferred. It's still in her home province. So that shows how difficult it is for those uh, migrant returning students to succeed. Because um, there's a kind of you know this rural-urban disparity and this uh, uh, provincial quota system really um, prevents a lot of aspiring students to um, achieve their uh, kind of uh, achieve their kind of aspiration. Yeah. So I just wanted
1: to clarify. Um, I was I was taken aback by because earlier you mentioned with with this new um, specific policy in Shanghai from 2010. That middle schools can take in second generation migrant migrant students. Mm-hmm. So even if they're taken into the into the school system, the edu- the examination system still requires that they return to their registered. Um, yes. Yeah. So this
2: for is. The second- mo- yeah. So for most uh, migrant students who even uh, who manage to attend public middle schools they still face this uh, difficulty when they are uh, 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 advancing to high school, academic high school. So a lot of them um, will choose to go back around the grade eight, the latest grade nine, um, because of this exam barrier. I call it the kind of a there's a glass ceiling in fact it's not even a glass ceiling because it's a pretty it's written clearly in the system so it's a ceiling effect that, which prevents people from moving ahead that's why those who decided not to go back to the countryside they have very limited options and the vocational education becomes the the only viable schooling option if if uh, he or she doesn't want to work, start working immediately after middle school. Yeah.
1: Thank you for clarifying that, Minghua. Let's move on to chapter six, where you look at the subject of consumption. Um, So in this chapter, which is titled Buying Belonging, you examine the consumer desires and behavior of migrant youth. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what these desires tell us about where migrant youth stand in Shanghai's cosmopolitan environment?
2: Thank you. I was struck by, you know, their consumer sensitivity uh, during my fieldwork. Uh, you know, a lot of those kids will remem- recall vividly how the goods in Shanghai are just much more better of uh, you know, better quality, better design than those that they can find in their hometown or village. And this become the index of the superiority of the city itself uh, in China's kind of large geopolitical kind of hierarchy. So um, it, it, I think you know because those um, migrants migrant youth grew up in a consumer culture uh, after the economic reforms, and as they were so used to um, shopping um, for themselves all uh, kind of with families, uh, consumption has really become um, one uh, means to uh, relate to the space and to the city and to some extent to build their identity. So uh, when I ask some of my, uh, you know, some students, why you didn't go back to your hometown, right, for high school since you, you, you seem to do pretty well in, in, in academic work. Like, you know, this example of what she just, uh, one girl just uh, kind of uh, claimed that, you know, um, the Coca-Cola sold back in my village is, was fake. <laughs> so this, this is, like, this strikes me, you know, uh, this fake Coca-Cola, it, it signifies the backwardness of the rural to many of those migrant youths, and um, so they you they they reject um, the countryside, um, and they see themselves and see their future only in the city. Um, so and through those. Uh, daily consumer behaviors like, you know, um, eating snacks, uh, eating, uh, drinking bottled beverages, uh, or, and having the milk teas, uh, which of the latest fashion, right. And posted on WeChat, uh, moment. These, uh, are, you know, these, um, justifies their sense of belonging in the city. And, uh, um, I, and and I think it plays a very important role in their um, daily life and this kind of subjective um, subjective formation of their um, kind of belonging. Of course, um, there's uh, limitations to consumption um, as a as a kind of a enabling um, uh, kind of a a power, right? Because uh, their consumer um, uh, capacity is limited. Because often when they were in, still in school, um, their pocket money was limited uh, and uh, varies according to their parents' economic uh, situation. So they often try to stay content with um, standard um, goods that has, br- that has brand names, but not those fancy brand names. Uh, you have, they, they can consume Colgate, a tooth, toothbrush, And, uh, you know, Coca-Cola and H&M and Zara because these are very affordable, uh, fashionable, and also kind of associated with youth identity. But as they, um, I found like uh, as they um, grow older, especially after uh, joining the labor market, then they become much more anxious as a consumer because they are entering a different market. Um, and, uh, you know they they are consuming um, leather goods like uh, handbags uh, more fashionable clothes and uh, start to think about uh, renting uh, even purchasing apartment in order to set up a families then they feel a lot of um, the pressure um, as a consumer and uh, this uh, and the, the anxiety and the frustration about it so, they they have much. They start to grow more ambiguous kind of uh, relationship to the city, while this city is a um, full of um, uh, goods that are that can be available to them, but to the city also become more distant because their uh, job opportunities and their living uh, their living conditions um, prevent them from achieving. The, the goals that are kind of informed by social media and television, like a TV, Java shows. Um, so when they are t- commenting on those brand name cars like Lamborghini or BMW, yes, they can, they, they, they show excitement and they talk about it, um, as, it as if it's kind of um, interesting uh, uh, objects to aspire, but they could also immediately flip and uh, the sense of um, despair, uh, kind of, uh, can sink in because they will soon realize that it probably will cost them, you know, lifetime uh, per, uh, kind of hard work to to purchase, or they probably cannot afford in their lifetime at all. So um, this uh, this uh, buying belonging is. Um, is is um, enabling, but also kind of uh, disfranchising, at the both time, at like at the same time. I feel.
1: Yeah, and I think that's of course maybe not limited to to a city like Shanghai or China, as global capitalism reminds us, citizenship and consum- consumption enhance one another, and that's something that you write about um in your chapter. But I can yeah in in, in the context of Shanghai, where the upper middle class, or you know are just rising continuously there's the constant ambiguity and and anxiety for those who don't fit into that group um but let's return to this this topic of um of labor and um and 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 i think what what was what's so kind of um fascinating and, and intriguing about your research is that you really um, you're able to really break a lot of the stereotypes that that to this day are attached to to migrants in China and this definitely comes out um, through labor because there's a general assumption to this day <clears throat> that migrants are willing to work harder for wor- lower late uh, sorry for lower wages and jobs which you categorize under the 3d so dangerous dirty and demeaning but instead through your ethnography you really show how you're informants break these assumptions. And you show the breadth of the job market that many migrant youth dip their toes into from from vocational schools in particular. So your informants end up working in a range of industries including hotel management, um, in an international chemical corporation, in auto retail and uh, repair, and and the e-commerce sector amongst others. at the same time these job placement opportunities that the, the voluntary sorry the vocational schools offer them continue to discriminate against the migrant youth that you got to know um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about this what kind of workforce is made available for um for second generation migrants in shanghai and how does it continue to discriminate against them
2: mm-hmm. so the, because and um, china no longer have this uh, so called uh, Iron Rice Bowl, right, where the schools will assign jobs for you. So migrant youth do have the uh, like, a cho- choices and then they can you know, apply jobs uh, by themselves or through the school recommendations. But let me just clarify that um, because the vocational school um, that are open up to migrant students actually still have some restrictions. Um, what kind of majors those migrant students can apply for or set quota uh, for certain majors. So, for example, um, nursing in many good, voca- uh, not good, like in voca- uh, reputable vocational schools often are restricted to local students only. While there's a coolie, which is kind of a caring and uh, Uh, which is considered to be less technical and skilled than nursing is opened up for uh, migrant students. But uh, Huli, this major, will lead to um, much more um, kind of mostly manual labor work in hospitals and the private uh, elderly care uh, centers and are paid less while nurses are considered to be much more stable and better paid. So um, it, there's a stratifying uh, mechanisms uh, even in the vocational school uh, system where migrant students, uh, despite their uh, academic performance, um, are still facing um, major restrictions. So a lot of majors that are first open up to them or offer scholarships to migrant students are those um, manual labor related, like uh, auto repair, um, chef, and uh, you know um, those um, digital machine control, which are not popular among local students anymore. So they, the government, and those local school, uh, those vocational schools, think that okay, it makes sense to open up to migrant students because they think that migrant students will be more willing to eat bitterness, to put up with uh, hardship because their parents are coming from you know rural poor background and they would have much less negotiation power right in the labor market but in my observation those uh, majors are equally unpopular among migrant students because their parents as well as themselves have higher aspiration for for them right they want to uh, do something that their parents uh, different from what their parents are doing, and they uh, those parents want to achieve, you know, uh, if not up, uh, kind of a class, uh, you know, uh, uh, out of um, how would they want to achieve upward mobility for their children? So uh, office jobs are much more preferred, even though office jobs are considered uh, are not necessarily paying um, better than manual work, but at least social status wise, it's perceived to be um, more prestigious than those kind of auto repair work. So there's a a, a disalignment between the state uh, intention, right? Oh, we want you to become the skilled laborers for manual work and for uh, service jobs. But, and, and then the parents' and the ch- migrant children's own aspiration for cleaner, air-conditioned, uh, decent office work. Um, that may uh, lead to something, you know, uh, managerial, uh, managerial jobs and uh, upward mobility. So, um, and, um, and because of the uh, hierarchy in the, within the education system for students who graduate from vocational school, they often have to um, join the entry-level uh, jobs, right? Um, either recommended by those schools or through their own network. And there, they often like clearly feel the hierarchy because a college degree holders uh, can have a high, slightly higher starting salaries, and also have uh, um, more opportunities for promotion. So the one example you mentioned, um, the the girl who worked in the international chemical corporation, she this is a very uh, you know um, Fortune five hundred company, and uh, she was considered to be very lucky to get the job, but after realizing that. She, as a vocational education, a vocational school graduate, she was paid much less and wouldn't be promoted to a position where um, the equivalents are doing similar jobs as what she's doing now. She, in the end, quit because because that she considered it's very unfair. Um, but the. Um, options outside is uh, not that many, so a lot of them are still kind of uh, struggling. But of course, the e-commerce um, has bring a lot of um, new opportunities, and uh, it's hard to say what exactly will do to a um, lot of those um, vocational education degree holders, because it seems uh, some are trying the Douyin or the WeChat. E-commerce to cash on, like you know, this whole um, online um, sale kind of um, kind of frenzy, right? And they do make some money by participating in those kind of um, activities, or even make, and they can make quite some money by uh, driving, you know, DD the share um, taxi um, system. But often it's very unstable and uh, very precarious. So whenever there's uh, some external factors, um, like recently, um, there's a lot of um, policy constraints on DD, and uh, there's uh, the COVID nineteen also affect a lot of sales. So then they often um, have to kind of scramble uh, something to make the ends meet. So there's a lot of uncertainty um, for those migrant youths, and that's why a lot of them are investing in. Uh, getting another degree to overcome this uh, credential um, uh, kind of disadvantage because they realize that the vocational education degree um, is just um, holding them back from moving ahead. Um, But um, they often become very cynical about this uh, credential because they know that they are getting the credential for the sake of the credential. So when they are um, taking night classes or even attend a full time um, uh, junior college education, they often complain about how um, unsubstantial the learning is, about how you know pragmatic it is, um, and um, they 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 also increasingly kind of uh, critical of this whole credential um, kind of game. Uh, what exactly can they bring? But um, it, it, it but I think this is something fa- uh, kind of shared. This kind of anxiety is shared um by urban youth as well, especially those who couldn't get into university education. So that's something uh kind of worth um exploring um as the China's kind of e uh, commerce and um, develop and in in the near future. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's a lot lot to explore. Um. Let's move on to the conclusion of your book where you provide an overview of the institutional restrictions and lack of social support that places second-generation migrant youth in, in a disadvantaged position. So the continuous sealing effect, effect and this kind of re- reminder um, in their lives that they are kind of second-class citizens in a way. Um, in light of this, and this is kind of a big question for you, Minhua, but how do you see the future of the next generation of migrant youth in Shanghai?
2: Thank you for the big question. Um, I think it's, a, I'm still looking for the answer. But for now, I want to say first, I think the um, the experience of those migrant youth is very unfortunate because um, in China, they, they, there's no explicit kind of ethnic label that can be applied to them. And they are physically, you know, not, uh, different from those urban uh, residents, and uh, such kind of uh, institutional discrimination against them, it could be avoided um, much easily than in many other cases around the world where you know racism, um, ethnic uh, ethnicity, or played a much bigger role, and there's a much longer history, um, complex and a comp- uh, political complexity attached to it. Um, So in my study, uh, amongst those who managed to um, receive vocational education, hanging out with uh, local Shanghainese and even actively seek um, support from some local NGOs, I do see a lot of hope um, among them. And uh, I think the limited um, experiment by some local NGOs shows that if you give them opportunities, those migrant youth could um, really strive and uh, uh, succeed. Uh, like those um, I mentioned in my uh, book, some managed to prove themselves to be very um, um, you know, strong students and managed to get scholarship to study abroad. So they completely circumvent the um, hukou-based uh, gaokao system and achieve... Uh, university degrees abroad Um, but of course this is very limited experiment because those um, local NGOs are very small scale and could only help a very small amount of students. Um, The majority that I observed are now uh, in their mid-20s and uh, like working in various industries um, um, in kind of a Low, lower middle tier kind of uh, positions in their professions. Um, quite some are still kind of uh, doing a lot of our jobs. So for them, um, precarity probably is more accurate to describe them. And, um, um, and, uh, and uh, a lot of them are f- facing more and more pressure Especially when they reach the marriage uh, age, um, and for men, this pressure is very um, you know visible, and uh, it's it's quite um, it's uh, like a generate I think a lot of um, physical stress um, among them and their families. Um, for like, there's a, some we didn't mention in detail, but I think there's some. Uh, Difference in terms of uh, girls and boys, um, young women seem to fare slightly better in the urban economy and also in the marriage market. So um, they seem to be um, doing better in as consumers and as you know, um, prof- as uh, professions, uh, who could uh, somehow. Um, make ends uh, meet and even uh, kind of achieve a certain degree of material success in the city. But um, because of this, um, um, the persistence of the hukou system and uh, based on the current policies, I do not see much uh, change uh, to the current system and there's even some tightening up uh, of the hukou restrictions um, the education eligibility. And so um, I, I don't see their future will change that much. I think they will continue to um, s- uh, suffer from this in-betweenness, um, and especially um, when they have their own children. I'm very curious how they are going to um, respond to the hukou restrictions when their own children are uh, reaching school age but of course um, the the I, I, I'm like you know, I'm still observing and uh, some of those um, marriages are actually cr- uh, cross hukou marriages so one of them usually the bra uh, the groom are local Shanghainese so they are hukou uh, their children's hukou it might not be a problem. Uh, for those migrant women, then their children might be able to enjoy more the social benefits of a local hookah holder. Um, but for migrant men who have much less chance in um, marrying a local woman, that's a bigger problem. And um, I think we, um, I still uh, need to kind of you know, uh, study more to answer this question. Yeah, these are,
1: you're welcome. These are really big questions and something that requires time and more observation and documentation and, and, um, you know, befriending more people who, who really live through these lives. Um, Meanwhile, I've taken up a lot of your time, but before we end today's program, I'd like to ask you about what you're working on and thinking about these days. So what kind of projects have you been doing since the inconvenient generation was
2: published? Oh, um, On one hand, I have been following up with some of my um, interlocutors um, in Shanghai to understand how they navigate in the marriage market, because I think it's a big challenge for um, them, especially for migrant men. And uh, also, um, because of the Shanghai's uh, constant urban expansion, I'm looking at the housing issue for the younger generation um, how they um, manage to live in such an expensive city while the income are often kept artificially low, especially due to their education credential limitations. Um, so that, that's on one side. But on the other side, I have been um, looking into the uh, villages where those um, migrant families have come from Because I feel, after three decades of uh, migration and a a lot of uh, villages uh, has been going through, you know, some scholars call it uh, empty nest like you know um, process, right? Because the able my uh, laborers all um, move out, Uh, but I'm curious what exactly is happening there. Um, So. Um, I try to understand how this uh, massive migration after uh, three decades of massive migration has impact um, the rural livelihood, um, particularly the, um, the uh, kind of uh, health and the environment. Because uh, when those abler, uh, able migrants uh, are working elsewhere, it's often the elderly who take care of the agricultural work and uh, take care of the young children. So, what hap- uh, how do people, um, you know, um, understand and practice the notion of health, uh, both uh, physical bodily health and uh, environmental health, in the absence of you know a large uh, like you know able um, labor population, and also uh, in face of this. Kind of rapid um, industrialization. How how do they um, do health, and how do in while they are uh, face uh, experiencing very drastic family structure kind of changes. So that's um, something I've been also working on. Well, but due to the kind of you know pandemic, I wasn't able to um, do much field work in the past year and a half. So. I, I still, um, I'm very looking forward to um, future field work um, in the rural area, yeah.
1: Yeah, those that sounds like really fascinating research and really topical, I mean, the issues of health and, and um, you know, these rural lives is something that I'm sure um, anyone who's listening to this program are looking forward to hearing about in more detail. Um, But for now, I want to thank you, Minhua. Thank you so much for taking your
2: time and talking to me today. Thank you very much um, for uh, reading the book and inviting me to this talk. It's really nice to, uh, you know, rethink about um, my book uh, and, uh, you know, the the, the topics that I have been working on uh, for long in the past. So it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure that
1: you joined us and thank you everyone um, who's listening to the show today have a good week goodbye
0: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper